So I'm going to read from Hosea uh, chapter 10 from the beginning right through to chapter 11, verse 11. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Then they will say, we have no king because we did not revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They will make many promises and take false oaths and make agreements. Therefore lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a ploughed field. The people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth-Avon. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests, those who had rejoiced over its splendor, because it is taken from them into exile. It will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its wooden idols. Sarah, uh, Samaria and its king will float away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel, and there you have remained. Did not war overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their double sin. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, so I'll put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim, Judah must plough, and Jacob must break up the ground. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unploughed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. But you have planted wickedness, you have reaped evil, you have eaten the fruit of deception, because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. The roar of battle will rise against your people so that all your fortresses will be devastated. As Shalman devastated Beth's Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to the ground with their children, thus will it happen to you, O Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went away from, they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them? because they refuse to repent. Swords will flash in their cities. 
will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we begin. We just sung our Father in our longing, in our darkness. Now the light of life has come. We praise you, our Father, that you have not left this world in darkness, that you have not left us to face the consequences of our actions. But, Father, you have intervened by sending the light of your Son. And so, Father, we pray now as we reflect on that news and the light that has come into our world, that you would give us confidence and joy in what we hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight, uh, as you've heard, we're continuing our series on uh, Hosea, and tonight's passage really gets to the heart of why the gospel alone is the only solution to humanity's biggest problem. Why the gospel alone is the only solution to humanity's biggest problem. Now, to give you a bit of context to this, I, I wonder that I think, rather, that um, one of the reasons the church finds itself on the margins of society today is actually not because of things like scientific knowledge growing or because of skepticism about the Bible. They are true, but I don't think that's what causes the problem. I just think, as a culture, we don't feel like we need what the church has got to say. Because a lot of what the church appears to be saying, people think they can get elsewhere. And say so the church, it talks about salvation, and we say to people, believe in Jesus and you'll live. But it's hard to hear, isn't it, when we've got a medical system that cures us of most things, albeit that that might be being re-evaluated at the moment. Or the church talks about community, and we say that Jesus forms a new community. But why do we need the church to give us community? We've got social media. You can find people that are into whatever you're on, into fly fishing or um, whatever trout tickling or whatever. Um, I don't know why that came to me. Um, you can find those people uh, through um, social media, uh, and uh, you can find people that are just like you and build community that way. Or, or the church talks about the care for the vulnerable, and we talk about God's concern for the voiceless. But we've got a political system, haven't we, uh, that can deal with poverty and isolation. So the church, I think, today finds itself speaking a message, but at every corner it doesn't sound very unique Sure, it's got some good ideas, but it sounds like one good idea amongst many. But tonight's passage shows us why what the church has got to say is not just some good idea. It's not some competing voice in the marketplace of opinions. It is the only solution 
to our biggest problem that we face. Now, how do we see that? Well, um, the way this section's put together, I would say at this point, look over the chapter and you'll see it. It's all very nicely there, but you can't do that with an app. Um, But uh, the way this section's put together is that it's structured around several images. Uh, And so we read of some grapes in chapter 9, verse 10, to a vine in chapter 10, verse 1, a a heifer or a calf uh, in chapter 10, verse 11, or a son uh, in chapter 11, verse 1. And uh, what links all these images, I think this is very intentional, Hosea's put them all together, is to show us that they all started off well, but they all had a disastrous outcome. See, they had a problem that meant they were flawed from the outset. And Hosea's doing this, I think, to show us that whatever angle we take, whatever circumstance you and me find ourselves in, actually we have a problem that is just too big for us to fix ourselves. We need a solution from elsewhere. And tonight, I want us to see that. I want us to see, first of all, what is the problem? Secondly, why we can't solve it ourselves. But thirdly, wonderfully, the person who can. Uh, First of all, then, what's the problem we're talking about? Uh, Why have we got a problem at all? Well, Hosea communicates it uh, using this image of some grapes in chapter 9, verse 10. Now, these aren't grapes you just find in a supermarket. These are grapes found in the desert. And so he says, um, uh, verse, uh, where are we? Chapter 9, verse 10, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. So you can imagine, can't you, wandering in the desert, no plant or flower in sight, and you can imagine the heat, can't you, the the dryness all around you and that feeling of your throat closing up. But then as you look out into the distance, you see some rocks. And as you approach these rocks, you see in the shadow of these rocks, a tree or a vine. And as you go up to the vine, you see on that vine a bunch of grapes bursting with fruit. See, God says that is what my people were like. He says they were like grapes in the desert. It was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. So early on, it was so promising. It was like the fruit on the fig tree. You taste that first bit and you think, wow, this is going to be great. This tree is going to produce fruit like this. But here's the thing. It didn't turn out like that. Here's what he goes on to say. But when they came to Baal Pure, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. Now, what's Baal Pure? Well, it's uh, in Numbers 25, and uh, it's, uh, it's a scandalous moment in Israel's history because Israel were not in the promised land. They were in the waiting room, ready to go. And while they waited, the Moabites, the local citizens, enticed them to their other gods. And it got so out of hand that the wives of the Moabites were sleeping with the Israelites. And uh, you read in Numbers 25 of this man, drag- this awful account of this man dragging a woman into his family tent to sleep with her in full view of everyone, no shame. Now, what's particularly striking about this incident is how early it happens. See, it wasn't hundreds of years after entering the land. It wasn't just some blip when the people got tired. It was right before the outset. It was day zero. It was before they entered. See, Hosea is saying to him, look, right from the outset, your hearts were uh, bent uh, towards idols. You were flawed from the beginning. Uh, a few years ago, to, in an effort to save money, I, um, uh, I bought myself, um, I don't know why I've got that there, but uh, we'll ignore that for a second. 
Uh, I bought myself a, a cheap bike, a really cheap bike. Um, it was so cheap that when I opened it and when I put it together, it was already bent. Uh, so it's not a good sign. Uh, and the, things, uh, the thing is, the two wheels were bent. So as soon as you got on to ride it, uh, the wheel would kind of, as it moved round, kind of hit the brake pad. Have you ever had this? Uh, and so as much as you try and pedal, it's constantly hitting the brake pad every kind of half turn. Uh, and the thing is with bikes, you can normally adjust the spokes by kind of turning one of them uh, and then kind of straightening out the wheel. But every time I did that, the metal was so cheap that actually it just couldn't be straight. And no matter what angle you kind of straighten it to, it would kind of bend out the other side. Uh, in the end of it, I had to uh, get rid of the bike uh, to one fortunate purchaser on uh, Gumtree. Uh, maybe you bought it. I'm sorry. No returns. Uh, and, but it's, it's like that with Israel. No matter what you do, no matter what you try, he's saying your hearts were set on idols. No matter what tweaks were made, you were just like the bike. And God says it's time to then bring like my bike, this story to a close. He says this in verse 10, uh, verse 11, Ephraim's glory will fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they rear children, I will bereave them of everyone. Woe to them when I turn away from them. See, God says, my people have turned away from me, and so I will turn away from them. And he uses really quite graphic language, doesn't he, to describe the exile that's going to take place when Assyria marches in and destroys the nation. Now, anything that talks about children in this way, of course, is a hugely sensitive topic, but it's worth just saying that we don't quite hear this the same way as they did. Because in the ancient world, your children were your legacy. If you wanted a nation to continue, it was down to the children continuing. And so what God is saying here, in admittedly graphic detail, is that legacy is going to stop. Your nation's finished. There's no descendants. And notice the poetic justice. Just in the beginning, he said, you were like grapes, but you bore no fruit. So now you're going to have no children to continue the nation. There's going to be no fruit. See, here is the big problem that God's people find themselves in. See, they have hearts that are bent towards idols. <coughs> From day one, it was inevitable that they would rebel. Just excuse me. And remember, we've seen this earlier on. Um, don't worry, I'm sure I'm fine. Um, <laughs> Uh, remember, we've seen this earlier on uh, from the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. Uh, we saw right at the beginning, didn't we, that uh, Hosea is told to marry uh, Gomer. And, um, sorry, let me just, come on. There we go. Hosea was to marry Gomer. And uh, remember, the thing about Gomer was she's a prostitute. And, and you can just imagine, we said this at the time, Hosea marrying her and hearing all those voices saying uh, she's going to repeat history. Uh, a leopard never changes his spot. And you can imagine Hosea thinking and feeling and praying that things would be very different, that she would change. But what happened? Well, after the wedding day, history repeated itself. She went back to her other lovers. And actually, without Jesus' work in our life, we are the same. Uh, here's what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Here's what he says. All have turned aside. 
all have turned towards idols. See, it's not that you and me occasionally mess up. It's not that we are pretty decent people, but often we just choose the wrong path now and again. The problem is far deeper than that. It is in our hearts. Our hearts are skewed towards idols. And that puts us on a very terrifying trajectory because it puts us on a trajectory where his people only incur judgment. So you take a holy God and you take idolatrous people and the outcome is what we read in this chapter. But secondly, you might think to yourself, well, yes, we've got a problem. Uh, And most people would accept that, wouldn't they? But why does that mean that we can't fix it ourselves? Well, chapter 10 really uh, tackles that question. See, chapter 10 uh, talks about Israel's history, but it does so from a number of different angles, uh, a number of different experiences they had. And the point of chapter 10, I think, is to show us no matter what they went through, whatever they experienced, it was the same inevitable outcome. Their hearts were caught up in idols. See, a lot of people think that we can solve the problems of our world uh, by ourselves, that we don't need the church to do that, and we certainly don't need what the church has got to say. And so if you're on the right wing, you might say, well, it's stronger families, it's less government interference, that's going to solve the problem. If you're on the left, you think, well, no, we need more protection through legislation, better education, that's the solution. But here we see that no matter what was tried, the people did not change. And so we get a series of things they experienced. Prosperity, first of all, on your handouts, you'll see there. See, having money didn't help them. See, look at verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, what happened when they had prosperity. See, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. See, now the image changes from not just one bunch of grapes sitting in the desert to a whole vine with thousands and thousands of grapes, the sort of grapes that would quite happily feed uh, you and me for a lifetime. Uh, In other words, Hosea is saying, look, this is Israel at its height of prosperity. Uh, And it seems that this was Israel's condition right in this day. See, Hosea is speaking at a time where there was incredible prosperity. The economy was roaring, austerity was over, house prices were rising, pension pots were growing, everyone had food in their stomachs. But look at the outcome, verse 10. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned sacred stones. Now, they are not good altars, they're not good sacred stones, they are sacred stones of idols. See, prosperity, he says, didn't change you. See, you didn't go after idolatry because you just didn't have enough to eat. Even when you did, your hearts were bent towards idols. See, prosperity didn't give them greater love for their Lord. It just showed what was truly in their hearts. I don't know if you've ever found yourself praying those sort of prayers where you say, God, please give me this job, this relationship, and then I'll love you more. And then you find that the thing you've prayed for so desperately is actually given to you, but you know you're unchanged, and you desire that next thing and that next thing. And what Hosea is saying here is that is normal when it comes to human beings. Prosperity doesn't change the hearts. Now, of course, we 
want to care for the poor. And of course, we want to make sure an economy is not regressive against uh, poor people. But it's saying here we've got a problem that even the bank balance of Jeff Bezos cannot fix. Well, if plenty is not the solution, what about wants? Where we move from the picture of prosperity uh, in chapter 10 to a picture of loss. See, he speaks about a calf in chapter 10, uh, verse 5. Here's what it says. The people who live in Samaria fear for the calf idol of Beth Evan. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests. Those who have rejoiced over its splendor because it is taken from them into exile. Now, there's a few things going on here, but he's speaking about a calf, and he's probably speaking about uh, the calves that were set up in the nation of Israel. See, a couple of centuries previously, uh, the king Jeroboam thought it'd be a good idea to set up two calves. I don't know if anyone told him what happened with Moses. That wasn't a good idea, but he decided not to do that, Uh, and he put a calf right at the north of the nation, uh, top of the nation, right at the bottom of the nation, so the people could worship at either side. But now, uh, it seems that Assyria has captured one of those calves and taken it away. And you might think to yourself that this is a chance for the people to kind of re-examine things, to, to turn back to the Lord. But look at their response. Verse 5, the people mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous priests. See, the people mourn. There's no changing of ways. There's no recognizing what they've done wrong and turning back to the Lord. They're so fixated on this idol, all they do is mourn and despair when it is taken from them. See, I think Hosea is showing to us even judgment, even discipline, is not the solution to change these people's heart. We've seen this, haven't we, all through the book of Hosea. Hosea, time and time again, warns the people to not persist in their idolatry. And yet, at the end of it, they still do. And so you get this rather chilling verse in verse 8. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. They will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. See, rather than praying to the Lord, they pray to the mountains that they may collapse and kill them. See, just threatening judgment doesn't actually change the heart. It's why telling people about judgment coming is important, but it's not enough. It won't deal with our heart problem. It won't cause us to turn from idols. Well, we haven't got time to look at liberty, but finally, I want us to see that love is not the solution. Now, maybe this is the point you've dropped off and you've come back in. Love is not the solution. Of course it is. It's the solution to everything. I mean, Disney's taught me that over the years. But actually, love didn't change the people either. See, Hosea here gives a wonderful picture of a father and a son. At 11 verse 1, he says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, not all father-son relationships are good ones, but this father-son relationship is. See, just look at the depth of feeling in verse 3. It was I who taught Ephraim, that's Israel, to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I've got to say, one of the biggest joys as a dad 
is seeing your child walk for the first time. Now, I didn't realize this, but there's a big warm-up to this. The, the, the toddler would kind of get up onto the sofa uh, and try and kind of work their way around and kind of hold onto the sofa. But eventually, they get pretty restless, and they want to get off, and so they start kind of holding on, but going, Daddy, Daddy. Um, I don't think they speak at that point. I don't know. But um, they kind of indicate to you that uh, they're, they're ready to get off. And, and so you grab them. Um, I have to go down quite low, but uh, you grab them by your two hands and walk around with them. Uh, guiding them where to go. And as you do, you just loosen your grip ever so slightly. And then eventually, they take their first step themselves. And it is just one of those incomparable moments of joy you experience as a father. And God says, that is the relationship I had with my people. See, God wasn't some tyrant. He wasn't some cosmic headmaster. He was a father. But look at what happened, verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. And so imagine a dad out in the park with his young son, and the child runs off. And initially, the father's quite happy for the child to run off, but he notices in the distance a main road. And so he thinks to himself, there's danger ahead. And so he calls out to the child. He says, son, just stop where you are. But the child, as pretty normal, um, persists and does the opposite thing. And so the dad runs after him and says, son, stop, stop. And each time he calls out to him, the son runs further and further. See, that is the picture here. The more God called, he says, the more they ran from me. See, do you see the point that even love itself is not the solution? See, God loved his people more than you can imagine, but nothing changed their hearts. By the way, it's worth saying this in passing, it's why the message of the church has to be something more profound than God loves you. Now, of course God loves people, and we're going to get to that in a moment, but, but it's much more than that. Just telling people that God loves them isn't enough in itself to change the heart. So if it's not prosperity, if it's not judgment, if it's not liberty, if it's not love even, what is the answer? Well, from 11 verse 8, we get a different answer. I love this. It's one of the most precious passages, I think, in the whole Old Testament. We turn here from the heart of the people to the heart of God. Look at 11 verse 8. God says this, how can I give you up Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebaim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. See, God is divided. He knows his justice demands judgment. He's given Israel every chance, every circumstance, every warning, and they stubbornly resist him. But he still loves them. And so he asks himself, how can I give you up? How can I give you up, O Israel? It's like a parent with a teenager. And the teenager's gone off the rails. They've got into drugs. They've messed up. They're in trouble with the law. And they know as a parent that they've got to kind of let them face the consequences of what they've gone through. There's got to be a degree of tough love. But at the end of the day, they're still their child. And everything in them wants to run up to them and throw their arms around them. See, that's where God finds himself. There's no delight in judgment. 
There's no, I've told you so, now you're going to face the consequences. There's just anguish in his heart. And what's interesting here is it's precisely because God is God that he has this anguish. Uh, I don't know if you notice 11 verse 9, I had to read it several times to check. Uh, I read it right. He says this, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. See, do you see the point? He's saying, I'm not going to do this because I'm God, I'm not a man. See, we imagine that it's because God's God that he's going to judge, but it's the opposite here, isn't it? It's because he's God that he won't judge his people. See, he's saying that if it was down to humans, if it was down to you and me, we would have smited Israel long ago, but because he's God, he has a different path. Uh, John Newton says this about the verse, if we had offended men or angels, if we had offended our Creator and Redeemer, and they had permission and power to punish us, our case would be utterly desperate. Only He who made us is able to bear with us. See, because God is God and not a man, He can do something, even when it looks like the problem cannot be fixed ourselves. But what can He do? He's given Israel every opportunity. He's given them riches. He's given them poverty. He's given them warning after warning. He's given them love, and they've not changed. Their hearts are bent towards idols. So what is the solution? We get a big hint in verse 8. How can I give you up? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebulun? Uh, Why does he talk about those two cities, Adma, Zebulun? What are they? Well, they are two cities that were also destroyed at the same time as Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, you'll remember that uh, back in Genesis, uh, God destroyed the cities despite, the, uh, despite all the warnings, but actually he destroyed a couple of other cities, Adma and Zebulun, at the same time. But what's interesting in Genesis and Deuteronomy when it talks about this is there's a very particular word that God uses to talk about this judgment. He uses the word overthrow. See, actually, when you read it in Genesis, when you read it in Deuteronomy, you read that God overthrew Adma and Zebulun. Now, why does that matter? Well, that same word, overthrow, comes here again. But actually, it's in a different place. It's been translated changed in this verse. See, God says, my heart is changed within me. My heart is overthrown within me. See, I think he does that to say that that judgment that fell on Adma and Zebulun falls again, but this time it's falling within God himself. Now, how does that work? Well, the New Testament picks up on this and uh, speaks uh, about Jesus. See, 11 verse 1 is quoted again in Matthew, and he says this, And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. See, Jesus was a refugee, and he went down to Egypt, and then he returned again. And Matthew is saying that Jesus was the true son, the true Israelite. Just as Israel came out of Egypt, so did Jesus come out. But unlike Israel, Jesus was a son who loved his father. The father said of him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And because Jesus was the Son, and because He loved His Father, 
He laid down his life, despite having every reason to inherit life, not judgments. He was turned over by his father. He was overthrown like Edma, Adma, and Zebulun. And so that God can say of you and me, I will not come in my wrath. I will not give them over. See, this really is the heart of the gospel. It's here in the Old Testament. God's justice demands judgment. But his love means that he absorbs that judgment within himself to show us forgiveness and to show us grace. See, right at the end of Hosea, Hosea is saying this is the only solution. It's not going to come from yourself. No matter what circumstance you uh, face, your hearts are still the same. The only solution is that God intervenes and absorbs all your wrongdoing in himself. I love this song. Who, O Lord, could save themselves? Their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is deeper still. We face a huge problem as a humanity, and particularly at this point in the history, perhaps we're particularly aware of that. No one does good. No one turns to God. And all the remedies we try and come up with, well, they have limited success. The prosperity, the judgment, the liberty, the love, they don't fix what's truly wrong with us. But God himself has fixed it. He is the only solution. And perhaps we're here tonight and we've not embraced that ourselves. Perhaps we're pretending to ourselves that we can still do something ourselves. If I just resolve to live differently, if I resolve to sort my life out, then I'll be okay. But God is saying to us, you cannot do it. Lay down your arms, turn to Jesus, and you will find life. And for those of us who have gone through that moment ourselves, let us as a church never tire of proclaiming that. Let us constantly remind one another, particularly as life feels like it might be entering a dark period, let us boldly declare to one another this news that Jesus has fixed our greatest problems. Let's pray. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zebulun? Our Father, we praise you so much for your sheer grace towards us. Father, we know that we stand uh, with Israel in turning away from you. And so, Father, we rejoice in that news that you have taken this judgment in yourself. And we pray, Father, that you would cause our hearts to turn from those things that entangle us and turn and embrace your love towards us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.